It's snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. Pistachios are known for their protein power, fiber, and better for you unsaturated fats for a combination that may help you keep feeling fuller longer. Wonderful Pistachios is a good source of protein with zero gill. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. I love that they come in a variety of sizes and flavors, making this the perfect protein snack for any on-the-go adventure. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Flow Track Podcast. We have a special guest today, the one and only Carl Lewis. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how you doing? Great, thank you. you know, pretty good so so far. I mean, obviously, in in a world of uncertainty, um, just trying to make things work like everyone else is. So, um, I, I'm I guess my big focus is just trying to to keep things going, um, hoping that we can do the responsible things so that people can get healthy and people can feel safe, and be able to get our world back together. It's going to be a long time, but that uh, we all work together collectively. I think that can speed up the process. Has it was there a moment? You know, obviously, when the season got canceled in in March, you know, we didn't really know what what, what was coming to, towards us. You know, that would be a big lockdown and all that stuff. When was the moment when you realized, oh, okay, this is more than just a week break, a two week break. This might be a whole season break, and we need to start adjusting everything for 2021. Well, when we came back, um, <clears throat> to be honest, I, I caught a flight out that afternoon at three o'clock, so uh, I went on vacation immediately and. Um, it took a few days. I know uh, Leroy and I talked about it, and he was he was probably more clear about it than I was. I mean, I thought, well, maybe there's some optimism, but um, it took about a week or so. Then we realized um, we have a challenge because we we actually thought even the Olympics was gone pretty early. So um, understanding the global aspect, traveling, having to travel so much, understanding that part, uh, we just really went into that position probably about two or three weeks after that. And and even now, I mean, it was frustration for the athletes. Uh, my my thoughts were not just for our athletes who couldn't run NCAA, but I felt bad for the high school kids that didn't have a chance to, to um, show themselves. And I think also a message to them is um, look at the opportunities you have instead of always waiting for the better because some of them uh, got put in a bad position. So it was really pretty quick, two or three weeks, I knew that we were moving into next year. Is there a little bit of like, you know, in Moscow, when they canceled the Olympics uh, or boycott the Olympics, you kind of didn't get to go, right? And you had to wait. You know, do you do you, do you have anything of that experience of like thinking that this is going to be an Olympic year, and then all of a sudden what is taken away from you? Do you have any kind of memories from that right. moment back when yeah. you, to kind of compare it to now? 
Well, that, that's a great question because that's one of the first things I did. I mean, I was only 18 when I made the Olympic team in 1980, um, and that was my freshman year in college. So uh, I, we remember, remember it well because um, the athletes did gear up. I mean, I didn't gear up as long because I was so young. I mean, my junior year in high school, I didn't think I'd ever make the Olympic team. In my senior year, I'm on it. So um, freshman year in college, rather. So I think that was immediately came to my mind. But there's a huge difference. Um, in 1980, President Carter announced that he, he was thinking about it after the invasion of Afghanistan. And then it went silent. Basically, to us, there was discussion, there was media, but the athletes had absolutely no voice. It was President Carter and his administration that had all of the decision and the choices. And then finally one day, excuse me, they announced it and it was over. So that was a frustration for the athletes. This time around, it was a little different. And I think social media helped. Um, the fact that um, they gave the athletes a voice, they had town hall meetings. And when the decision was made, the athletes understood it. And I thought that was a big, big difference that made it much better this time than it did when I did. Um, you know, It's still frustrating, it's still hard, it's still challenging for the athletes, but at least they had a voice. And I think that's the big, big difference uh, from us to them. You know. Talking to, we've been talking to a lot of coaches about this whole um, situation, how to how to handle this season. A lot of coaches we talk to are more kind of distance-based coaches where, you know, it's kind of easy to take a year off. All you do is just get the miles in, just work on that base, you know. But what does a sprinter do? Because a lot of times, you know, a sprinter's training resume is very different from a, a distance athlete. So how do you keep someone sharp for such a long period of time without any races? Well, the, the bottom line for us is that we just um... – kept them in shape a little bit. I changed dis uh, the distances, obviously. We went to uh, grass running a lot more. I put them on hills, which we could, it's hard to find in Houston. Uh, so I, I really did not try to keep them sharp. I just tried to keep them in relative shape. Um, once you get into shape, like we did in the fall season, you're, you're really gonna maintain that if you just do something. So the big thing was, I, I wanted to make sure that we understood that we probably would not be back until next year, but you also don't want to, dash the hopes of the young athletes so you have to keep a balance so what we what we did is that i just went to grass we went to more strides we did they did a run each week um they running hills things like that where they can continue to maintain strength maintain strength um and endurance uh but also run on running mechanics they were doing uh strides 100 100 meter strides on the grass just things like that just to stay in shape the idea was you don't want to try to stay sharp for a year without running you really need a downtime. So we just wanted to keep them in shape long enough so they can take their off season in the summer like they normally would and then start back up because you could just say, oh, it's over, we're done. But then you're going to end up with five or six months of inactivity, weight gain, those kind of things as well. So it, for us, it just went into like a kind of semi-off season. A uh, lot of like, some unique changes that happened for you in the off season. I mean, there was a report coming out that you have a new athlete that you're going to start coaching, uh, the German long jump champion. Uh, world's not, she's German, but the long jump world champion. Uh, can you kind of talk about how that came about and why uh, you decided to take on another professional athlete? Well, um, that came about because they reached out to us at through our relationship with Nike. Um, as, as you know, and everyone knows, I've been with Nike forever. And and so she's a Nike athlete. So that was kind of how the contact was made. And they reached out to Leroy and myself. Well, basically, you know, I, I, I've been around the sport, back around the sport, and I was never had any intention of coaching or anything like this. It's just, you know, sometimes you have to follow the path of, of what the spirit leads you to do. But um, 
you know, I've been around now for seven years and it's been a little frustrating for me to watch the long jump. Um, we, we, we always get to where we have this new guy that's going to break the record or this new girl that's going to jump far. Um, and in the past year, Brittany Reese reached out to Carol and myself and talked to us. She even came and met with us to talk about the long jump. She wants to be uh, jump farther. So if you think about it, the two best athletes now we've had in the last 10 years are really trying to go farther. They're not just not trying to win. So I, that's something that really intrigued me. Anyone that says, I want to win a world championship, I want to break the records. I want to jump 750 or farther as a female. Um, and Brittany Reese, and um, she actually showed that that's the thing they want to do. So um, my thing is that if someone wants to jump far and learn how to do it and be consistent, then I'm good with it. And that's basically what it was. So we're still working out the details um, and the logistics of it because it is isn't easy. It's a big move for her. Obviously, it's it's more of a commitment for us. But our, but our initial intention. Um, and mine is specifically was to coach athletes in, at the collegiate level, get their degree and develop them for the Olympics. I wasn't just here to win championships at the University of Houston. And we have every intention of winning a national championship, continuing to win conference championships. But our goal was to get Olympians. And when I came in 2016, we had two Olympians on the team that actually had transferred. So Leroy was doing a tremendous job of recruiting, but those two guys transferred away. And this year, we probably would have had about 10 Olympians and we had at least 16 going to the trials. So in four years, we've achieved our goal. But the also the ultimate for any U of H, H-Town Speed City athlete, is to come here and stay with this program all the way through their career. That's the commitment we give. So she can just mix right into that. Um, it's obvious that she would be a tremendous help to the young athletes to be a world champion and inspire them. But I think she has a talent to jump far and, and run under under 11 seconds. And, and that won't just help her as a long jumper in terms of her distance. What it does, it enables her to not have to jump so much, uh, not have to travel so much. And we're gonna put her on a similar situation that we've done. And I expect her uh, to jump very, very far. When, um, obviously, you, you you know, everyone knows. It's kind of weird to not talk about the elephant in the room. This is a track podcast, and, you know, we like we like the distraction of talking about track and field, but there's bigger things happening in the in the world uh, the past few weeks. Uh, how are you feeling um, about the whole situation with the the protests, but all triggered from the, the police killing of George Floyd? And how has it affected you? You're, you're, have you talked to your athletes about it? Um, and what's just basically you're feeling right now on this whole situation well first of all the athletes i think have been pretty professional and obviously we monitor what they talk about to make sure that they understand these great issues um issues that affect them uh, in terms of, of how they're treated voting uh, the consequences and things like that so i don't think they have handled things pretty well um we've had one or two people we've had to say wait a minute understand the issues more before you really really talk about it um in terms of me personally uh, it's very personal. Um, first of all, I've been racially profiled in my life. I've had to teach my son how to treat with the police, and he is actually uh, a, a, a veteran. Um, and I think it's time that uh, we we stop this process. And, and, and it's not a coincidence that we've had a racist in the White House uh, for the past few years where people have been emboldened to do things even more. A lot of the uh, the things that we were doing, some of it started in the Bush administration, um, and it also went through the uh, Obama administration where they were going after uh, 
police brutality, these kinds of issues have been dismantled. Uh, a lot of the racial tensions have brought, been brought up because it starts right at the top of the White House. So the thing about this time that's different is I think the public understands that we're at such a low because of our leadership. First of all, through um, the pandemic, it has been an absolute disaster the way that's been handled. There's been no leadership at the national level. So therefore, um, the White House has created this situation where we lead the world in deaths and cases simply because of the lack of leadership and caring from the White House. So that starts the frustration. And then we continue to have murders, senseless murders. And this, this, isn't, this isn't just a, a death, it's a murder. And they're senseless. And three people were actually physically touching someone that was killed. So it's, it's over. And I think that what really surprises and, and excites me is that this time it's not gonna be like last time. Before uh, we had a situation where they were able to pivot and focus on the violence and it just fizzled away. This time it's not. I, I, I love the fact that um, the, the violence is becoming um, uh, peaceful, continue to be peaceful. But what's happening is that you can see in communities where the police are moving towards uh, the peaceful protests instead of everyone else trying to break it up. What the president did yesterday was absolutely reprehensible. And it's, it's never been done in the history of our country. I was shocked and dismayed that this person stood up at a podium and threatened the United States citizens. It is, it is just unprecedented. And so what you have to do is stay vigilant in the fact that you see police chiefs and, and people in their communities all over the country kneeling with protesters, walking with protesters. So that's where the focus should be. And not some fake phony Antifa thing where white nationalists are posing as them to change the subject. This is about what's right. Um, it's great to see that these protests are multiracial, multicultural, um, all ages. So it's, it's Americans that understand that this problem has to stop and racism has to stop. It's going to take time. But that's what I'm excited about, because I really believe we're going to get on the other side of the violence and continue to protest and clean house of this White House, of the, of the Senate, and so that we can get some things done in this country. That's the reality. Um, it, it, it's, I mean, I can't even imagine in my lifetime that we, we would have such vitriol, anger, selfishness, childness in, in, in a White House that's leading a country and embarrassing this country for the whole world because they see it. Um, when I travel the world, they're embarrassed for us that we have someone leading our country uh, of that nature. So I'm, 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 I'm frustrated, but I'm, I'm heartened because I think that we, we might have gotten to a point where, you know, we're going to have to stop this. And I see the police and them moving towards the protesters in a way that's never been happened. That's never been done. So currently we're in the middle of it, right? With the, 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 the rising of, of the protests. Um, eventually, you know, the protest is all about asking for change. What would you say is something like in the kind of, kind of making more specific to like the track world because most people listen to this podcast, you know, on track teams. And I like to think about how a track team is actually a really good, you know, um, display of what a, a community is like, right? It's not all yeah, people absolutely. come from the same area. You know, you have, it's a very diverse track team is one of the most diverse types of team, diverse teams, kind of like a football team is very diverse. So how do you think, what would be your message for, you know, high school kids, college kids who are on track teams with different athletes around them, different teammates from different backgrounds, 
and how they should what what can they do i guess is the question well the, the first thing everyone can do, yeah the first thing they can do is vote um the the i've been here for years we've had two presidential elections during the time i've, I've been teaching these athletes and half only half of them at the most vote you can vote on our campus so that's the first thing if you're if you're younger um start getting engaging in the issues so that when you have a chance to vote you can the number one issue is voting because as long as we have an administration that wants to treat people this way um, we're not going to get any change we have to vote these people out and and use the power that we're given um, when they try to push back on things like uh, voter id um, you cannot do uh, absentee balloting. This is this is all a way to stop because they know if everyone votes, they can't win. So that's number one. Number two, as a team, I think that oftentimes, and we all get this way, um, we the distance group sometimes goes because they practice in the morning at a different time. They don't get to know the sprinters, jumpers, hurdlers. I think that's the, the part about it. Teams themselves can sit down and talk about the issues. You know, Oftentimes when, when an African-American talks about their experience that other people may not know, they first, they want to go to racism. Oh, that's just racial, you're thinking. No, you, you have to open yourselves as a team, as a coach, as a program to listen to other people's experiences. See, that's the difference. The problem is that you don't understand everyone's experience. So if, if you live a life where you grow up where you are afraid of the police because you've seen them murder people in your neighborhoods, they stop you for whatever, they, they stop and frisk you, or, or they ask you questions, or they pull your car over, then, then you have an experience where you're, you're uh, a little nervous about the police. Well, if it's, everything is great and wonderful, then you don't have experience. I mean, I mean, look, we have a guy that was killed, um, ultimately, because he might have passed a, a, a counterfeit $20 bill. What if he didn't know that was a $20 bill? He just went to a machine. We don't know the facts, but the bottom line, he might have gotten that out of an ATM machine and passed it and didn't even know, and he's dead. Well, how many people um, would you go up to for a counterfeit dollar and, and end up in violence? So it's obvious that they came with a, a an agenda when they went to, to uh, talk to him, as opposed to normally just a simple passing a, a top $20 bill. So these are the experiences that we know happen. So I think the biggest thing, that they can discuss it. And kids from both sides and all sides can learn uh, what their experiences are. And another great thing about track and field is that it's international. So we have kids from the Middle East, from Africa, from South America. We should open their experiences also because that is the greatest thing that happened to me in my lifetime was travel. I learned more on the road in museums, speaking language, eating their food than anything I could have imagined sitting here in the United States. When this is was all going down this past week, um, a lot of top uh, American athletes were, you know, posting social media posts uh, uh, about what this what this death means to them and how, like, kind of coming out and kind of speaking stuff that they normally weren't don't talk about, I guess, publicly. And right. some of the some of the trends was about some African American athletes who kind of have a conflict of interest a lot of times when they say they wear the team usa kit uh because they think usa doesn't uh align with their with them you know it's not an equal playing field or so how do you as an athlete who's represented team usa multiple times uh and hopefully coaching future athletes to represent team usa how do you what's your message to athletes who think about this kind of like uh question that they have in their head like am i doing the right thing am i not you know well, how well, would be your response to that? 
Well, I, I totally respect that. And I understand that. Um, what happens is that you, you have to change the environment that you're in because that's where you are. It's, what, what I've likened about sports, we still have athletes and people and coaches and, and administrators in all sports that are not inclusive. That, that's a fact. But the bottom line is that the leagues and the sports themselves are becoming leaders in inclusion. Um, that, that's one of the things. So what I would say to them is, look, you're in a place as an athlete that can change because, you know, you, it's really not accepted in our sports any longer. Now, we're still going to have people all the time. But, but your league, where you are as an athlete, track and field athlete, you're part of, you're part of the solution. So take that solution you're part of and move on. And when you think of Team USA, you're representing the people. Um, and, and, and I've been through amazing experience. And I'll tell you something, when I was campaigning really quick, which I, I hope resonates, um, I went to every single district. And so even the, the reddest, reddest district, I was running as a Democrat. And one time I was leaving that district when, of course, everyone's like, get out of here and everything else. But, but a guy was running to me, he had no shirt, he had on cutoff jeans and barefoot, running at me. And I said, oh my goodness gracious. And this guy came up to me and I didn't know what he was gonna do. You know, I'm in their neighborhood, but he ran up and he hugged me and he says, you came to my house and I was in a shower and I missed you. And my mother said that uh, you came and I just wanna tell you how much of a fan I was and how much I love you and I'll vote for you and I'm gonna get everyone to vote. And this, this guy was in the deepest, reddest, reddest area in the world uh, that you can imagine. Well, the guy that was walking with me just walked away and he said, what just happened? And I said, look, everyone likes the Olympics. So what, what I learned out of that experience is that you could be um, uh, multicultural, multiracial, you could be, um, you love everyone, you could be a racist, but, but people still try to rally around that flag. So I think sports is a way that you can transcend um, things in, in the issues. And that's why it's so important for athletes to speak up for what they believe and, and stay strong because they have a very powerful voice. Don't stop, keep going, don't be frustrated uh, because ultimately you will be judged in, in a high way because you're a part of the solution. When um, you, you talk about how you, you've experienced racial profiling and from, you know, the average person or like, how could someone racial profile one of the most famous runners of all time, right? You know, you think that, you know, some athletes who have like, who are famous or have, you know, wealth that they're going to be treated differently, right? Because they're just socially, economically differently. But even then they still get treated like just the average human being based on the color of their skin. So when you, when you talk about like when a, famous person not calling you famous you are famous <laughs> when a famous person brings up the fact that like it even happens to me do you think what do you think that says about that it's it's beyond just like class right, it's, right. it's it's bigger than that you know what i mean i mean and obviously it is class as well but the thing is that you can't always see class you can see you can see skin color um the thing about it is that I, what we see now in a lot of people, racism is fear. Um, they're afraid of what could happen if everyone was inclusive. Um, and, and I think that it's more, it's a lot about educating people on some of the issues. But for me, really, it, it, was, it was a little bit more subtle in a lot of ways. Um, I, one thing that happened when I lived in New Jersey is I sat in a restaurant, uh, two people didn't know who I was. 
and they refused to serve me. This was in, in 20, uh, 2010. So they just refused to serve me. They were like, well, we're not serving you. And I finally got to the manager and they tried to make excuses. And then I ended up talking to the general manager and they were like, they, they didn't make excuses, but they were like, well, we don't really like that. Would you come back to eat? And I said, absolutely not. So this, this is something that happened in South Jersey um, in the last 10 years. And I've been everywhere on earth. South Africa, all these places during apartheid. I didn't go during apartheid, but I've been to these places. And the only place that ever happened to me was right down the street from my hometown, five miles from my hometown. So um, it's not always that um, overt. Sometimes it's subtle. Like if people ask me things like, um, well, especially early in my career, well, well, where are you from? New Jersey. And they automatically defer to Trenton or Camden. Well, um, Trenton or Camden are great cities, but they're highly African-American. So they automatically assume I live there. They make say, where are your parents? And I'm like, well, they're both at home together. These are, these are things that um, they automatically think. And then, and then also I've been driving before and I've been stopped and it's, oh, I'm sorry. They, they recognize me. So these are the kind of things that happen. And, but guess what? What if I wasn't recognized? Then that would have been completely different. So it, it's, it's, there's a two-headed sword. I mean, yeah, you get advantages because you are successful. Um, you get advantages because you're a celebrity. There's no question about that, but that doesn't change your color. And so we deal with this on a daily basis. So I have to look at not only myself, but my son, now my granddaughter and, her, and their family. These are the things that we have to teach them something that others don't even know to experience. And we have to teach them how to manage it. One uh, thing that, you know, I, I take away from this, you know, trying to think about in the end, these are people making decisions that are, are wrong, right? You know, the cop, what right. he did, he's making a wrong decision when he thought to like at the same, but there was a point when he was a six month old baby, right? And just like the world was his oyster, right? But then something happened along his life when he became a man where he developed this mindset, right? How would you, you know, I would, I would like to think that the ultimate eventually to get to the perfect situation is that better uh, finding ways to really nail in the head of youth, like this isn't cool. Right. And so when it becomes normalized that this is not normal, right. Then, then, you know, it helps solve it, it. It's a big dent in the problem. What would you say would be a good way to kind of educate younger individuals who are naive about the world that they live in you know they just hey I, I i just play before they become an adult and they actually start leading you know the being leaders in the world how do we address how do we get to the young people to kind of change their mindset so when they are adults and they see something like this happen they stop it or they prevent it before it even has an opportunity to occur right well, we have to be more honest at every level. Let's just start with the basic level, um, public school systems. Um, people uh, in, in Texas, let's say, or, or other states, you know, generally public school systems are paid for uh, by property taxes. Well, the first thing we do is that we, we people move. To, um, white flight is something that was developed back years ago where when a certain amount of African-American or immigrants um, they, people start moving. So everyone moves to their own neighborhood together. And uh, many times it may be somebody affluent. And then some of the successful uh, people of color that want to move into those neighborhoods, they try to deny that 
And then he turned around and say, well, your neighborhood's terrible. You need to stay there. And uh, why are we sending our money over there? Well, because you just left and went away. Um, in schools, automatically we teach little black boys that they're bad and we give other kids um, a better opportunity. Even, even when I was dealing with my son growing up, um, my son was clearly treated as a black boy, not a boy, because, you know, if he did something, he was he was um, they tried to give a certain type of detention. And then if another little white boy was given the same thing, they got a better got a lighter detention. Well, guess what? If that starts in kindergarten and first grade all the way up through school, then you're being taught that you're a bad kid. And then you end up in the um, uh, the alternate school because of all these attentions. And then you can't get to the good college because of all the attentions where the other kid doesn't. Um, we th these are the kind of things that, that happen. So it's it's systemic in school systems, in public, uh, in families. Parents teach kids to be racist. They are not born racist. They kids are generally born to love. So these are where it starts. It starts with um, our, our, our political structure, um, our community structure, our parents, our families, and fear, and that's it. What what really gets me is that when a police officer walks up. They always say when they shoot them, I was in fear of my life. Why are you automatically in fear of your life just because a black person standing there? And, and then you'll walk up to someone that looks like them with a machine gun or, or, or a gun and you talk to them. But you walk up to a black person that doesn't have a weapon, but you're afraid of them. These are these are taught and learned experiences. So what really has to happen, it starts in this, this systemic system at every single level, from schools, from community, from stores, from everywhere. We have to make sure that we go there. And then the parents that continue to perpetuate racism and hate and anger um, all of a sudden become marginalized. So, so if we can't get it at every level, uh, then it's not gonna happen. And so how do we educate them? We tell the truth about issues that happen. Um, we, we start educating all kids on all types of histories and the good and the bad. And then when we go to stores, we treat everyone the same. The store has to do it. And then um, their clubs have to do it. It has to be that way because it can't come from the home because a, a, a racist is ra raised as racist. So therefore we have to educate them outside of the home so that the kids see the, 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 uh, the conflict. Uh, they're not conflicted. Uh, they understand, wait a minute, something's not right here and they get other information. And I think that's how they can stop it. Is there any like how you know we talk um, when all this is happening around the world? It's kind of like everything is kind of dropping to the wayside, you know. There's and there's no sports to to distract us, right? Normally, like when social right. movements happen, people can get distracted with other things, whether it's Netflix or sports. But we're in the middle of a pandemic, so there's literally nothing else to think about, right? <laughs> we're sitting in our houses right. all day. Uh, what I guess what should you know you could you could you know go to a you know your local protest, but like you can't be a perfect you can't like protest every day and just stand on the street twenty four seven forever right. like eventually things you know protests die down and then something you different back. you come back right so what how do we come back is you, you talk about voting, but voting isn't for another few months. You know, we're but still in the middle of right. we're, we're, we're in June, you know, we have a whole summer. So what should people be doing this summer, would you say, would be like a a good exercise, I guess? 
Well, well, I think I think it's an opportunity to do things you, you hadn't done before. You know, um, this is the first time I've had a spring off since 1970 something. So, um, and right now on my schedule, there's absolutely nothing on my schedule for travel. Um, I, I've averaged over 100,000 miles a year for 40 years, and now there's nothing on my schedule. So I, I, I tried to figure out a way to make my life better. You know, I have my granddaughter who'll be with Stanley before a month. Um, just she, she and I, woo. And then I have, um, uh, I started working on myself. Last fall, I started uh, focusing on losing weight, getting in shape. Um, I've made a goal now where I'm gonna, I'm to bench press 300 pounds on my 60th birthday next year. So I, I started doing things, got back, you know, got the garden, made the garden bigger, um, started looking, how can I make my diet better? How can I exercise more? I'm riding 60 miles a week. So I think the thing is, is that what you can do is, is better yourself, educate yourself. You have time to read and educate. All of these issues and all of the, the, the people that are out protesting uh, the pandemic, educate yourself you have time read about it get information um to go out and read factual information and make decisions that can make it better i think everyone can come out of this pandemic a better person emotionally uh physically uh health-wise everything so focus on yourself for a minute and how you can project that to others and make the world around you better um that's what i'm trying to do i'm I, i'm discussing with a lot of the kids but i'm not talking to the kids very much because right i think right now is the time they don't need to, to be in this thing, in this process. We spend so much time, nine months a year in school and training and practice and together. And I'm like, you're never gonna get a chance like this again in your career, especially in college. Take the time with your family, uh, you know, study, maybe take summer school classes online, uh, educate yourself on issues. I think that's one of the benefits that sports has been away from all of us because we did have to sit back and think about this. Look, look at the diversity in these in these protests and the people. What could that have happened? Would it be getting the same attention if right now we were going into we were in the NBA playoffs? No, probably not. And we're just starting. We're in the middle of the baseball year. Probably not. So I think that we can look at it as a positive. It's bad for the sports. It's bad for television networks who are crying about programming or some of the athletes that are not being paid. But but the bottom line, I think, in, in the in the large scheme of things. I think it's a unique opportunity for us to stop and 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 get off the train right now for a minute and just say, what can I do to improve my life, my family? Um, we talked about everyone saying, oh my gosh, we're going to be in the house with the kids all the time. I, I love seeing all these amazing tweets and and Instagram posts about all the family things they're doing in the home, ideas. Um, so. I think we should look at it as a positive and for a stop and a reset and ask everyone, have you reset your life? And have you set goals for the summer that you think you wouldn't do? Um, maybe go on just a family road trip and not have to um, socially distance and keep your mask, but that's time to do something. Have you been to um, all the, 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 the uh, monuments or things like that that are kind of open that you can be at? I mean, whatever you can do, I think we should take the opportunity in this one unique time in our lives where the world stopped to make your life better, to see what you can do for other people more, to see how, um, what can you do for your wife, your family, your kids at time. Many people don't even see their kids very much, but now they're seeing them 24 hours a day. So I, I, I think in the long run, it could be a tremendous positive if you take it in that sense that, what can I do? And as athletes, um, you, uh, I go out riding. Well, what a family, they have a distance running kid, well, take up running. Maybe the family walks for a while, the kid runs a little bit. These are the kind of things I think we should be doing. Athletes stay in shape, 
interact in a different way. You know, focus on yourself more because coaches are not around the same way. These are the things I think that they could do over the summer to really enjoy themselves, but also be safe. I mean, this rush to get back and to open up to me is dangerous. Um, we, we should focus on how do we keep everyone safe and put an environment where they feel like they can go places again um, and, and not rush to get back. I mean, we're in college sports. Everyone wants to get football and basketball back for the financial gain that they have. I think that's that, that's I see it and I understand it. But also we have to do it in a measured way that makes everyone safe. But also it should be a part of the college experience. And, and I look forward to getting us a place where we can go back to the new normal. We will never be the same again. So let's accept that and let's let's carve a new normal for the future and think about what your life is going to be on the other side of the pandemic and what we as a society will be on the other side of the pandemic when we get to the next phase about caring about others. Um, the one thing I wear a mask because I don't want anyone to get sick. I have a, I have a three-year-old granddaughter and a 90-year-old mother. I, my granddaughter always has her mask on. That's for other people, not for me. So maybe it's a time we start seeing who really does care about the rest of the world? The things you can show that the world is bigger than you, that you can make a difference just one little person at a time, even if it's them just seeing you wearing a mask or caring for someone else or doing something else. You mentioned you, you lost a little weight you, and you say you want to bench, you want to bench press age 60, 300 pounds. Are you almost at racing weight? Like, are we going to be able to see you hop on the track anytime soon and run maybe a uh, hundred meters? Well, well, um, I'm actually, uh, I've lost 35 pounds since, since June. Oh, wow. Um, and it was a measured way. I changed my diet again. Um, I got more focused and I started lifting in January with that goal in mind. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's when I turn 60 next year, it's, it, I, I wanted to get to 60 and I wanted to get to every decade, the best I could be at that time. And so when I started coaching, the lifestyle changed. And so I had to adapt to it. So this has been a wonderful time for me to try to reboot myself. So um, I, I have no interest whatsoever in doing masters or anything like that. And that's not because I like it. I absolutely love masters. My mother competed into her 60s. I, I'm inspired every time I see a master's race, whether it's a 45 year old or 90 or 100 year old, I'm inspired. But that's not really for me. I mean, I, I ran the world as, as a professional athlete and a collegiate athlete. And my time is over. So to them, it's like their it's their Olympic experience and their world championship experience. So let them have that experience. So for me, it's just riding. I mean, I, I, I rode Sunday. I rode 42 miles on my bike Sunday. And I'd like to get to where I'm riding 100 miles a week. That's my goal. So um, I'm getting my fitness through that. I'm back down to within five pounds of um, my, my actual optimum weight, um, which was 179. I did that in 1991. I was 179. In uh, Atlanta, I was 183. So I'm really within a few pounds of that there. But obviously, everything's different. But my big thing now is to see, can I respond? I don't even know if I can get strong enough to bench that bench press that much. Because when I started in January, I hadn't lifted in 10 years. And I probably benched 150 at that time. And that was a struggle. So I've got to double that weight in a year and a half. So it's, it's kind of intriguing. For me to say, well, can I really do it? I don't know. I'm at 60. Will my body look the same? Will I be as fit? Will, when I lose the weight, will I look as toned? I mean, that's kind of the intriguing, excitement part. And and it's funny. It's kind of coming at a time um, when I've been working with a company uh, called uh, 
Rebel 360. And what we're trying to do is help people get healthy and stay healthy. And so um, I, I think in the future, I want to be able to not only just get through this experience for someone that's in their 50s and 60s, but also share the experience, how to do it, how it works. It is different. I mean, I'm sore in certain ways. I'm a little bit more tired. <clears throat> I have to drink more fluids. These are things that I'm learning as, an, as a world-class athlete in the past, but as a six-year-old middle-aged man now that I want to share so that other people can have the same things that I have. I always think about, I'm not, I think I mentioned this to you one time when we were filming the Houston series, but I'm not sure if you've ever seen The Office. Have you ever seen The Office? With Steve oh, yeah, Carell? I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Dude, there's a scene where Steve Carell is racing on the street and he and he says, take that, Carl Lewis. Do you, do you know about that scene? <laughs> I do know about it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what I want to see is, what Steve Carell's probably the same age as you right now, right? He's probably going towards 60, right? So we yeah, get, yeah. Uh, we, we, we settle the debate, right? We get Carl and Steve Carell to actually see who is faster in Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's what we need to see. Well, we'll uh, live on flow track. <laughs> well, that you know what, if, if Steve reaches out, I do it. We don't have a heck of a lot else to do right now. But um, it, you know, it, it, to be honest, I think that it's it's kind of an illustration of how entertainment and sports has merged over the years, and especially in my lifetime as an athlete. And and I'm obviously a big fan. He is hilarious and, and love his work. But the big thing is that running is something that everyone can do um, because you can do it your own pace your own way. When I'm out riding around in the neighborhood on my bike, I see tall, short, big, small, everyone moving. And so I think that's the real message, hopefully, that even something like that happened, the message is everyone can move. So get up and, and you know, get up and move something at your own pace. Yeah, we no, no one has an excuse not to be moving, right? You got to you gotta keep going. And you're still doing it even at almost age of 60. When's your birthday? When's your birthday? July 1st. Um, so I always say that uh, I start the second half of everyone's year, and because when I was born, I was tough. I was a long uh, labor. I was breech born. I didn't want to come out. They just pulled me, you know. And so um, <laughs> it's like leave me in here. Um, but they waited a couple of days till everyone rested, and then they celebrated on the fourth for me. Do you think? Uh, I mean, one last. Uh, you mean you talked about how college football is going to be the main domino to make sure we have all the our other sports. What are your thoughts? Do you think we're going to have college football? And do you think we will have a 2021 season for track and going out there? Um, college football is going to happen. Obviously, we're not sure, but it's going to happen. And I, I think just so that everyone doesn't completely go psycho, it really it really needs to happen at some point. So I'm, I'm rooting for it. I'm rooting for the athletes, the coaches, the administrations, the universities, um, because it's a big, important fabric of every university. So I hope it happens. And I hope students can witness it. It's, and, and I would really be disappointed if we had gains and no students, student athletes. So I hope that they can witness it as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I do believe 2021 will be back up. Uh, I think fall is is sketchy. There's no, I know cross country is a little nervous about that. It's going to be sketchy, but I think that we'll be back up in the spring. But the only way it can happen is if we are diligent about uh, what we're supposed to do and we're safe and we protect ourselves and we protect our community. Um, I, I read something about, about two months ago about uh, a doctor was saying that really the reality is that we're not going to get around the corner until about 60 to 70 percent of the people have been affected at one way or another. Either uh, they've, they've tested positive, 
they've uh, been sick or they are carrier or something. And so whether we like it or not, the numbers are going to have to get up. And then a vaccine can kind of give us the confidence to get back. But the big issue is that, and I keep telling the student athletes, everyone I know, it doesn't really matter. We will not be the same. We're not going to pack people in that close anymore. People are going to be nervous, even with the vaccine. So how do we adjust our economy? How do we adjust our stadiums? How do we adjust um, our airplanes, places that we usually pack people in really tight? in a new world where everyone's a little bit nervous. So I think that the sooner we start adjusting our mind to that way, uh, the better off we're gonna be. I really do believe we're gonna have spring. Winter, I'm not sure, um, but we'll have spring, but it would be interesting if it's to fall in the winter sport did not happen. I mean, it would be terrible for us. It'd be terrible for uh, college sports in all sports, but then it'd be an entire year. Because it, one of the things that I think a lot of the athletes in, in the public doesn't realize that we have to redshirt um, basically like almost all of our team went into our season. So that's this pandemic of just last spring um, and uh, winter is going to affect every single school for the next four years. Um, everyone talks about bringing seniors back. And, and I want to thank our administration because our administration is committed to our program. We're bringing every senior that wants to come back that we want back back. Um, and we're supporting it 100 percent. And uh, they're coming back. They're excited. They're going to get their degrees. And that's kind of what we really want to do. Finish the mission. And the university and uh, President Couture, Dr. Couture and Chris Pesman have really, really stepped up to support us in that regard. But the thing is, for some schools, it's, it's a bad thing. You're, you can't bring kids back. And that's tough. Or you had a great team like, like LSU was tremendous last year. And then I know they were frustrated that they didn't get a chance to run. Well, I'd be frustrated the same way. It's a great program and a great team. But for us, it's the opposite. We, we had a lot of new guys that were coming in that we needed to get ready. Now they have an extra year. So I think it's going to happen at, at the worst case scenario, spring. I'm really optimistic about winter. Fall, I'm really uh, nervous about. Well, Carl, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Uh, it's been good. Hopefully you you hit your goal of that 300 bench press by age 60. That'll be fun to watch. You'll got videotape. Yeah, put it up. yeah, you got to put that on Instagram or something. Let everyone see. Oh, I, oh, so, oh, 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 I, I have a plan of how I'm, I'm going to actually um, I'm setting up right now a way for people to follow me because I, I need to make it a daily process because if I don't talk about it all the time, I need people to dog me and say, wait a minute, you took a day off. What the heck is that about? I need the world to help me. <laughs> Sounds good, man. You, and you got, you got a, isn't there, there's a video of you. Didn't you make a music video where you're, where you're in a bench press room? It's like in the eighties or something like that. Yeah. I did you know a, what I'm talking about? Music video. Yeah. A music video called break it up. The song. Um, yeah. And, it was actually good. Yep. And, and you're I, in, you're, in, you're in a, yeah. So what you gotta do is you gotta, you gotta bust out that outfit for it you gotta, well, you gotta find that outfit uh that was the 80s um that was the 80s that was the 80s of big hair shoulder pads so you know the 70s cool look is cool it's coming back 60s 70s slim and everything leave the 80s in the 80s at the 80s <laughs> you know it was fun what happened i love the oversized and everything was big and all the flashy colors but looking back it's a hot hot mess i do not want to go back to the 80s fashion <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a flat top and, and big hair I like, but everything else, forget it. Okay, sounds good. Well, best of luck, and hopefully uh, we'll have track and field in 2021 or maybe the Diamond League in August. Who knows? We never know. So Yeah, we'll see. I think that's a 
optimistic because I just don't know how people are going to get in and out of their countries. I think that, you know, yeah. America's closed. So I, I hope so, uh, because a lot of the athletes need it. But but you know what? I, you, I, I don't mean to take a little more time, but I, I do want to talk That's about right. this. I think I think we're taking a wrong stance on this, this the way we're doing track and field internationally. Now, this is the professional level. It's clear that there are way too many athletes that run post-collegiate. Our, our sport is not like football or basketball or baseball, where there are a finite amount of athletes that can run. Anyone that wants to run post-collegiate can. There are too many athletes, too many agents, too few meets, too few events. Honestly, I think our leadership should take this as an opportunity to reboot. To reboot. Let's just go back to General Motors. I mean, they were bloated and big and struggling and filed for bankruptcy back in 2008. Well, they came out a leaner and meaner and smaller company, and they're right back extremely successful again. That's what track needs to do. We need to reboot and come back with about 60% of the athletes that we have now. And that's just the reality of it. And can set new standards where we can we can create a, a, a definitive number of how many athletes are at the second level so that we can better serve the great athletes instead of constantly scraping uh, to serve the athletes that should have retired and gone into a job. Yeah, so you're like, we need to put more focus on the people who are making semifinals, not the people who are constantly exiting in the first round, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I look at something, um, you know, Sebastian Coe, your leader, I, I think he's very smart and articulate and understands, but he just they just put up a $500,000 fund to give for athletes, and they said, you know, reach out for money to help. I mean, they're, they're probably... 1,500 athletes at the professional level. I mean, what are you going to give them, $75 a piece? I mean, that's worse than our stimulus checks. So um, <laughs> we, we we really should, should I mean, we shouldn't, I mean, that was an embarrassment to, for $500,000. I mean, I, I know 600 people that can write a $500,000 check. I mean, so I think that we, we instead of that, we should come up with a finite number. I mean, if you thought about it, world-class at an A, if you took an A, B, and a C league system, and the A-League only has 32 athletes, that's it, in each event, then now we're cutting the numbers down dramatically. And you have to be an A-League person. And so it's just like the soccer leagues in Europe, how they drop teams out of the league. That's what we're going to have to do. And we're going to have to just just go as a, as a sport, as a federation, as the shoe companies need to say, look, we got to stop signing all these people. It makes no sense. And, and that's the way I think we're going to build our sport so that you're right. We need to focus on the superstars that are going well, and then the second level developing athletes. But the third and fourth and fifth, they need jobs, and they need to to go back and support the sport in the way they can because they're not helping by just hanging on. Yeah, I did an analysis. Normally, if if you're not good by the time you're like age 22, you the odds are you're not going to be great by age 24 and 26. Right. You know you. Right. If you're if you're not able to develop during those eighteen to twenty two age range, then it's not going to happen in the second tier of your of your trading, most likely. I mean, well, there are exceptions, well, you know, obviously, but yeah, there are exceptions, right? But but it's very very rare. But I, but I look at someone like a Tremaine Jefferson, um, who was seven indoor and outdoor NCAA last year, made the world championship team, had a great year. Well, guess what? When we were at the national championships, and this is this is true, and he'll tell you, I told him, I said, look, you have jumped twenty six feet twice in your career. Um, you play second indoor nationals, but they don't give an Olympic medal for indoor long jump. So I said, so you have a one-year career today. If you can't show that you can be an upper 26, 27-foot jumper, if you can't 
try be in the, in the case to win this event, if you can't be competitive at that level, well, then you need to just finish your degree and get a job. Well, he responded. He got second. He went on and made the world championship team. Then he ended up going to Europe because of that. Well, he, he, he responded to that situation, but he also was realistic and he knew that, hey, if I don't do this, then I need to move on. And we try to teach our young people, our athletes, that everyone comes in that wants to make the Olympics and we want them to have that mindset. But there comes a time when you have to realize um, I'm jumping a certain distance and you know the the world-class level is that distance and to make the team is that distance and i just got my degree and so i could piddle around in this for the next 10 years and struggle and and, and you know scrape and scrap or else i could be building my craft for my career and then find a put yourself in a financial situation where you can give back to your sport i think we need to have more serious and honest conversations about that part of it um we try to make sure that we train you and teach you how to be the best person you can be. And, and that's why we've noticed and, and we've demanded really that every athlete stays there four years and finishes out their degree, plus get the experience of competing at four years in college. In, in the United States, and thanks to you, Flow Track, Miles Split, um, um, ESPN, all of these people, you get more publicity running college track than you get running. Um, post-collegiate track in the United States. Grant Holloway was on TV more than any post-collegiate athlete last the last three years. Uh, I'm sorry, post-collegiate athlete. So you, it's a huge benefit to stay in college and you're only building your brand. It's not going away. You, you, you know, if you can make X amount now, you could continue to win. You can make X amount later. Cesaret's a perfect example. He had a great career. He, he did nothing but build his brand. So I think that we try to teach people, if you want to be a successful um, college athlete, uh, and professional athlete, this isn't football or basketball where you can get a huge contract. You have to constantly build your brand. And so the college experience is great. Your education is great. And think long-term, not short-term. Truer words never been said by Carl Lewis. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, again, hopefully we have track, man. I can't wait. I, track needs to come well, back. I'm, I'm, I'm itching. I, I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We, we are men's team is and women's team are outstanding our sprint program is right now with the guys coming in and everyone coming back um we're better than we were with cameron and eli and, and that's so I, I really want to get back to that back to track because i think we can do some special things with the guys we have can't wait to see it thanks a lot carl appreciate it great thank you